Well, let's uh, begin by um, listening to a, a sacred text. Uh, and now, uh, the end is near, and now I face the final curtain. So runs the beginning of Frank Sinatra's song, My Way. It's among the most popular of funeral items. And chapter 9 of the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that he is absolutely right. Do please turn to it. It begins on page 674 of the Church Bibles. Uh, There in the uh, seat either in front of you or the one you're sitting on, whichever it may be. In recent years, when we um, want to indicate irony or we want to say that something should be taken in a particular way, we make this particular sign. It stands for inverted commas. I don't quite know why we've started to do it in the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, inverted commas have been around for a long time, but we've started to do it, and it's quite, quite a useful one. And most of Ecclesiastes sits inside a set of... In that verse 1... Uh, of the book, and most, well, a good part of the last chapter, invite us uh, to step outside what we've heard for most of it, and to treat the bit that's inverted in the inverted commas with a sense of slight detachment, a sense that, okay, this is going up to a certain point, but let's be careful how we treat it. Chapter 9 sits firmly inside those inverted commas and we'll have something to say about how it fits into the Christian picture a little later on, but for the moment, we take it in its own terms. And according to chapter 9, and agreeing with Frank, death is the final curtain for every single one of us. Everyone shares this common destiny that's spoken of in verse 2. There's no real advantage to being righteous or wise, uh, good or bad. And that means that everything is rubbish, really. According to verse 3, there's an evil in everything, really, in everything. Nothing escapes the same destiny, and that creates a kind of madness in the human heart. There's madness in their hearts, says the, the, the person talking, who we call the preacher. Knowing we all die leads to a certain kind of evil in our hearts, a kind of what's-the-point-of-it-allness. Now, one of the things that the preacher is doing at this point is taking on, full-on, uh, a certain tradition that they had of wisdom teaching. You can find parts of it in the rest of the Old Testament. And it ran something like this, that if you were wise, you would be rewarded for being wise. If you were foolish, you would receive your just desserts for being foolish. And the preacher at this point is saying, hello, how would you know? Your tradition, your beautiful tradition of teaching of wisdom is useless. You are whistling in the wind. If you think you have any better idea than anyone else, what happens after death? Death is simply the end of everything, and everyone's got to face it. 
The preacher is taking this tradition and pouring a a dose of cold water on it, uh, almost a dose of acid on it. He's taking the, uh, the, the wittering of the optimists of his time, and he's making them as absurd as a Monty Python sketch. He's passed on. This person is no more. He has ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff. He's off his twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off this mortal coil, run down the curtain, and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-person. The style that he's using is meant to be absurd, ridiculous. It's ruthlessly unsentimental. And so he quotes a, a saying of the time. Uh, where is it? Here we are in verse uh, 4. A living dog is better than a dead lion. While I live, I hope. Sounds good. Maybe it's true. The preacher allows, well, maybe it's true, yes. There's, a, there's an advantage, yes, in being alive over being dead. But what is that advantage? Well, it's this, that the dead know nothing, while the living do know something, and that's that they're going to die. That's how big an advantage it is to be alive over being dead. And so in the face of this corrosive approach to life and death, what follows? Well, then he offers a few, just a few consolations of being alive. Verses 7 and 8, be content. Go and eat and drink with a joyful heart. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Live in contentment. Receive God's verdict upon you. It's an approval, but only and precisely if you stop struggling, either to earn his approval, earn it by your goodness, or spurn it by your wickedness. And similarly, show your joy by your, by your dress and by your behavior. Um, wearing white was a sign of joy, anointing your head, was a sign of feasting and good times. Be content. Verse 9, be companionable. Everyone in those days would have been married, so go, enjoy life with your wife. Expect love. Expect a lifelong relationship. Enjoy it. Be content, be companionable, and then verse 10, be occupied. Just get on with whatever it falls to you to get on with. Don't spend your time dreaming about the future or regretting the past. Just get on with it. Work, effort, toil. These are good things in themselves. Of course, he says they are only, really, painkillers to anesthetize the pain of life. It's just, by the way, that none of these things actually matters. But if you want to enjoy them, go and enjoy them. Be content, be companionable, be occupied. They'll keep you busy. They don't matter, but they'll keep you busy, and you might enjoy a few things along the way. That's really what he has to say. And before we offer any Christian comment on this, this book set in the heart of the Old Testament for Jewish people, and before we move on to any say anything Christian about it, let's register a couple of things. Uh, yes, this sense of deliberate gloom with all its meaninglessness. I have to say this hasn't happened to us. It's important probably as a parent, I put down the marker, that this has not happened to us. It may have happened to you. 
it can sound like a teenager on a, on a bad trip, a sort of Harry Enfield teenager. You've no idea how much my life's just totally ruined. It, it can have that kind of gloom to it. But actually, although it can be sent up in that way, what he is saying here in Ecclesiastes is precisely what the world thinks. Not necessarily thinks through the way that the preacher thinks, but certainly thinks. It does sometimes happen that the two preachers preparing uh, their own sermons for a Sunday happen on the same little nugget. And like Mark this morning, I too happened upon the British Social Attitudes Survey that was published this week. But I came to it via a radio report on uh, BBC Radio 4. And uh, the confusion of the poor reporter was very obvious. The survey had been done, and in matters of personal morality, the last few decades have seen a real change in a much more liberal direction. Cohabitation, homosexual practice, these are acceptable in a completely different way from 20 years ago. And yet, said the reporter, economic principles that people hold seem to have changed in a much more conservative direction. We don't want to pay taxes. We're less inclined to be charitable. How can this be? Liberal over here, conservative over here. But of course, because he was putting it in political terms, it was bound to lead to confusion. I felt I could have helped him, but he didn't ask. What is it that holds together the new profile of our social attitudes? It's very simple indeed. We are sinners. As sinners, almost as definition of what it is to be a sinner, we want to be able to do whatever we want without anyone telling us it's wrong. So, of course, on one side, we seem more liberal. Equally, as sinners, we want to be selfish and tight-fisted towards everyone else. So we can seem to, on the other side, more conservative. It's not an issue of politics at all. It's just that we're casting off restraint and appearing ever more realistically in the true colors of our hearts. Like the preacher here, exactly and precisely like the preacher here in chapter 9, what we are saying, and the social attitudes survey is showing it up, is this. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die and that's it. Well, if we uh, think about it, we may think that the tone that you get coming through in this reading is, is extravagant, it's over the top. But it is precisely what the world thinks. It is precisely what I hear Frank Sinatra singing at funeral after funeral. I did it my way. Yes, you did. And you sing about the good things you found along the way and you make uh, uh, nifty little sayings out of them. But if someone then pours the acid of close inquiry over your life, like the preacher does in Ecclesiastes, what does it add up to, Frank? This. You did it your way and now you're dead. So what will we say if we know that Sinatra was wrong? If we trust that Jesus was right? 
does everything that is said here, because it's in those inverted commas, have to go into reverse because we know better after Jesus? If we say that death is not the end, if we say that life can be meaningful, do we have to reverse everything here? Does it mean don't enjoy life with your wife? Welcome, by the way, to the Cumberlands after their recent wedding. Just important, you might want to listen to this. Does it mean don't eat and drink and be glad? One of the great things of not having a lot of hair is that you can see Mike blushing, even all the way to the top. Uh, Some Christians have said precisely that, that you're not supposed to enjoy life with your wife. You're not supposed to eat and drink. St. Paul writes to some people in Rome, and especially in Corinth, who believed that eating was a super-sensitive issue, what you should eat, when you should eat it, how, who with. And sex was an absolute no-no. And he tells them off. That hasn't stopped Christian sects and cults doing the same thing down the years. And they're wrong too. So what do we do with this? Well, Jesus was forever teaching by comparing things. And he did so in three basic ways. Uh, Firstly, he'd say the kingdom of heaven is like this. It was a comparison of similarity. But sometimes it would be the opposite. Don't throw your pearls to pigs, but ask and you will receive. It was a comparison of contrast. And the right way to approach the teaching of Ecclesiastes here is in neither of those two ways. Rather, in the third way that he teaches. Jesus said, if you can give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your father give good gifts to you? It's a how much more kind of comparison. If when life is utterly meaningless, it is possible to live in contentment and companionship and to be occupied, then how much more will that be the case once life is given meaning, once it's given eternal value? Now, I guess lots of us here who are believers would like to think that the message that on the third day Jesus rises from the dead is good news for everyone, that everyone will want to know the how much more of knowing that death is not the end. But the history of the Christian church ought to warn me that I'm wrong in hoping for that. And this week's news of social attitudes ought to show me that I'm wrong. The message, on the contrary, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that that message will always do the work that it's always done. It will divide people. It's not universally received as good news. It divides people into those who choose to receive it as good news and those who see it as really bad news. I don't want to finish by saying about this whole chapter. Well, we know as Christian believers that the picture is much bigger than the poor preacher sees. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We've understood the good news. We've understood that death isn't the end. Hallelujah, let's sing another song. Because that seems to me a half-understood perspective to what's going on here. And so to finish up, I want to offer the other half of the perspective and to go to two questions that have been asked recently. First one was asked in a seminar on Wednesday evening at Norwich Central Baptist Church. A number of us were there. And it was this question. 
What do we say to those who see the reality of death, but who want to deny God's right to act as judge? Now, when we are asked that question, it comes straight out of the Attitudes Survey. I've got the right to act as I please, whatever the consequences, and no one, not even God, has the right to examine me about it. Sometimes questions come to us that need not an answer, but another question. Because at issue is the heart of the person objecting more than the objection itself. All you can do with that objection is to take the person asking to the Bible and show what it means to be human, to have rights and responsibilities as Scripture shows them. And like Jesus, sometimes we can really only ask a question back to show up the heart. And so to someone who asks that question, we say, to whom are you responsible for the exercise of this freedom that you so want to regard as precious? And if you say the answer is no one, that means that no one else is responsible either. And every other person on this planet has the right to do to you and with you whatever they please. Is that what you want? In that case, life is meaningless. And look, the Bible even has a picture of what your life will look like if you want to pursue a thoroughgoing insistence on rights and non-judgment with death as the end and everything as meaningless. Do you really want to live in the book of Ecclesiastes? Because I don't. And the second question was asked of me. I was talking at the UEA Christian Union a couple of weeks ago, and I offered a a question and answer session afterwards. It's always a risk, uh, because the questions uh, begin by uh, steering close to the subject you think you're on, but uh, as, as time goes on, they range further away. And by the end, people are beginning to address the issues that they themselves have got. And the last question was this. How can you be sure that the religions of the world haven't just made everything worse? And the answer, of course, is that we very nearly can't be sure. Look at the history of the world. And just as Ecclesiastes is right about the apparent meaninglessness of life, you'd have to say that religions don't appear to have improved things very much. There is just one small thing, perhaps, to count against that meaninglessness. One small event. Jesus rose. Now, if he didn't, then yes, let the tide of meaninglessness that is Ecclesiastes roll over us and extinguish from us all hope, all meaning, all real taste and glory in life. But if Jesus rose from the dead three days after being crucified then that one event in one life makes every life meaningful, yours and mine tonight included. Because if he rose, if he did, I can. The message of Jesus' resurrection is good news for me because it's met me and it's claimed me and I long to live under that message. But we will meet those who don't just happen to think 
eat and drink for tomorrow we die, but are invincibly set upon that message because the very hopelessness, the very lack of judgment, the very indifference of the universe is what they are putting their trust in. So let's not be surprised that some people will want to live in Ecclesiastes even when we say to them, by the way, let me take you over here to these stories of a man that was put to death for you and rose three days later. Indeed, not only will some people want to live in it, but we should ourselves study it, for it shows us how deeply set the determination will be among some people to live meaninglessly. Nonetheless, how much more there can be in life once Jesus has risen and poured his glory into life and death and life again. Let's pray. Lord God, we see the inverted commas around the teaching of Ecclesiastes. And we know for ourselves, perhaps, that with Jesus Christ risen, death is not the end, and the destiny towards which the preacher looked represents a hope beyond life itself. But keep us realistic, we pray, about the hopelessness of many who live around us. And give us that same sense of ruthless unsentimentality that can look the world in the face, know what it's about, and still declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. For we ask it in his name and for the sake of his glory. Amen.